Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Well, good evening. Welcome back once again to Exodus. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump back in. Lord, I thank you for this chance we have to come together this evening and to study your word. We pray your blessing over our discussion tonight. Lord, will you guide and direct our thoughts as we try to process some of these things? Will you help us to think through them in a way that honors you? Will you allow this ancient word to have practical application for our lives and see, Lord, how this this meets us right where we're at? God, we pray for wisdom as we pursue this. We ask for your blessing over our study and pray, Lord, ultimately that we might be people who are transformed into the likeness of Jesus uh, because we have spent time sitting at your feet. Thank you, Lord, for this privilege we have to study. And we uh, just pray, Lord, for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Last time we left off uh, talking about kind of finishing our discussion of what Jesus, uh, what Jesus said when he talked about the summarization of the law. Do you guys remember this? So Jesus said, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all that you have. That's like the Ten Commandments, Numbers 1 through 4. But then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, just like Commandments 5 through 10. And so Jesus' summarization of the law, and I don't know if this uh, pushes against some ideas that you've heard in the past or perhaps held in the past, but in my opinion, Jesus uh, does not, when he, comes to, uh, when he comes bringing the kingdom of God, he does not say, let's set aside this old law and now let me give you my new law, but rather he comes to fulfill it. And when he says, this is the greatest commandment, this is the second greatest commandment, I don't think he's saying these are the only two out of that whole rubbish pile of laws we've got in Genesis through Deuteronomy. These are the only two that really matter. I think instead what he's saying, no, these, I'm going to these two places because this is what summarizes the essence of what the law was about in the first place. Okay? And so as soon as Moses Here's these words. Uh, It says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They think their lives are in danger because God is speaking with them. So whatever we think about what happens in Exodus 19 and Exodus chapter 20, we have to realize that the reaction to it is them actually thinking they might die. This is incredible. And I think the reality is that God wants them in a place where they're trembling, where they're actually shaking. Listen to what happens 40 years later when Moses 
uh, standing on the edge of the land of Canaan, speaks to the people in the book of Deuteronomy. Here's what he says uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Well, this is actually God speaking. Uh, Moses is recounting what happened there. He actually gives us the Ten Commandments again. And then this is what he says in verse uh, 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, remember this is Moses talking about what happened in Exodus 20. As soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? We're still alive now. Please, can we continue? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all the flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say. And you speak to us all that the Lord will speak to you and we will hear it and do it. You listen, Moses. We will hear and then we will do it. Okay. But then listen to what God says in response to this. Verse 28 of Deuteronomy chapter 5. The Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Do you hear this? God wants the people to be trembling in his presence. Because something happens when you learn to fear God. When you properly fear God, your obedience then is not just because it was spoken. It's because of an awe and a reverence for the one who told you what to do. In fact, uh, Daniel Block, in uh, a lot of his writings and teaching, he talks about uh, kind of the formula for life that we have in the book of Deuteronomy. Here's what I think it looks like. Hear. So you got to hear the words first. Maybe sometimes you read them first and then you hear them, but you hear the words and then you fear. You hear what God has done and you come to a fear, a holy fear of a holy God. Then you do. Only after your fear do you do. Then you obey. And if you obey, then you will live. This is the formula for life. I think we often think about this. Hear, do. Right? I just hear it and then you do it. You just obey right away. But notice God did not seek to tell the Israelites as they were living in the land of Egypt, here's all the rules that you're going to need to follow. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't give false testimony. Don't covet. Right? 
And he didn't make them commit to this list while they were in the land of Egypt. Instead, he let them see his mighty hand and outstretched arm, bringing them through the Red Sea, bringing them to Mount Sinai, appearing on Mount Sinai in such an incredible way that they literally feared for their lives. And as they trembled in the presence of a holy God who they thought could probably kill them at any moment, they also realized his incredible grace and compassion for them, right? And so I think a biblical fear, fear of the Lord, is not simply being scared to death of God, although I think that's part of it. I think it's also being struck with awe and reverence at who he is and what he has done for us, right? So a biblical fear means that we come to God perhaps trembling because of what he has done and what he continues to do in our lives, okay? So if we want to live, this seems to be the very biblical formula. In fact, this occurs several times uh, throughout the, I think kind of in the book of Exodus, but for sure throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Any questions about, about this? Okay. You know, the book of Proverbs says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, right? I think we struggle to understand what that means. I know I do, right? Well, I, didn't, I wasn't raised to fear God necessarily. I mean, I surely respected God, but I think we hear a lot more sermons about God being our friend than we do about being afraid of God. And I'm not saying that's bad. I think we need to see God as our friend in many ways. But at the same time, there's a line there, right? Where this friend standing in his presence makes you feel like you're probably going to die. I mean, think about all the times that people actually saw a piece of God or were in the presence of God in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 6. What does he say standing in the presence of God? Woe is me. I am ruined. He thinks that's it. That's what the people think here at the mountain. Uh, so standing in the presence of God is, is yes, it can be a, a, an amazing thing where we, where we find our value and our worth, yet at the same time, he is a mighty and a holy God. And if our perspective of him does not involve at least some trembling and fear in his presence, then perhaps we, don't, we need to shift a little bit our perspective of who he is. Does this make sense? Right. He's a loving God, but he'll, yes. He is a loving God, but he is, I mean, to be loving means to be just. Right? And so there will come a moment when he, when he judges the world. And it's terrifying. Right? Wouldn't it, uh, Moses, uh, he said that no man can see the face of God and live. Yeah. Yeah. And put his hand over it and he passed by and he let him see his hind quarters. Yeah. Yeah. But he didn't see his face. Right. Yeah. Because no one can see the face of God and still live. Yeah. Yeah. 
Exodus, we'll actually get to that here in a few weeks, hopefully. <laughs> Exodus chapter 34. So, Okay, here's what I want to do, um, just as we kind of finish our conversation about this. If you have your handout from last week, if you can pull it out. I put on the back of there, just for fun, the Atheist's Ten Non-Commandments. And so uh, from what I understand, CNN kind of uh, publicized this several years ago, maybe 2013 or something, uh, where they asked for submissions. Send in your uh, non-commandments, right? Uh, for all you atheists out there, let us know what do you think. And, and then they compiled this list that they felt like kind of represented the top ten. Okay? So if you have that out, uh, maybe you can take a minute and just with two or three people next to you, read through that list and just make some observations. What do you notice about the list? Uh, do you see, does anything strike you as interesting or uh, surprising about the list? Um, and then I suppose I'd also like you to think about, is there any connection to Exodus chapter 20 and some of these things even on the list? Okay, so go ahead and do that for just a few minutes here. Okay, so I'm curious, what were some of your thoughts as you read through some of these things? Some of them look like they just took an actual commandment and reworded it to fit their needs. Okay, that's true. What else did you notice? They did bring up God. Okay, they did bring up God in order to say, let's dismiss him entirely. Yes. Yeah. What else? Well, why would you live? I mean, there wouldn't, if there's no God, why, would, why don't you just live for yourself? Okay. Yeah. So if there is no God, there's no right or wrong. And there's no right or wrong. So you can just live for yourself. But, but they've made a bunch of rules here. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's a little bit of a, seems to be a little bit of a self contradiction. So there is no right or wrong, <clears throat> but there are 10 non commandments. That you should follow, right? So, especially number two, you know, strive to uh, understand what's most likely to be true. Yeah. To me, the Bible is more likely to be true. Yes. Yeah. It depends on how you interpret that. Yeah. Some of them almost seem beyond like they fly in the face of a certain one of the original ten commandments. Okay. For instance, like which one? Okay, you mean, so they, they seem to be contradictory to what the commandment actually says. I see. Because I would think seven, seven maybe we could say, well, that seems to correspond with some of the other commands. But I think uh, number five, right, we would say, well, that's not possible if you're going to look at commands one through four. Yeah, so. Yeah. Right, yeah, for sure. Good. The way they see it is love yourself, love other people when it benefits you. Okay, very good. Love yourself, love, the, love other people when it benefits you. I like that. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. Yeah. Um, I thought number one was interesting 
may just go, eh, just go with the wind. You know, something better comes along. Hey, try it out. Yeah. Whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Leave it better than we found it. Uh, I think it's interesting. Some of these are a little uh, self-contradictory, right? So if number four is true, every person has the right to control of their own body. Can nine also be true? There is no one right way to live. Can ten... Also be true if, if number four is true. Like if I have a right to control my own body, but then that means that I'm going to destroy the creation, well, then they both can't be true. Maybe I've just learned more by the time I get to number 10, and that's my new truth. So I've shifted. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, what is, what is most likely to be true, but there's no one right way, but just, yeah. Now, I'm not, I suppose part of my, uh, part of what I'm doing is bashing them, so, um, okay, I'll, to be fair, I, I guess that is a little bit what's happening, um, but that's not really my purpose. Part of the purpose is a couple of things. Number one, I think we would look at this list, um, as I heard a few people saying, I think we could agree with several of these, right? And actually, as I think about our culture, I think a whole lot of these, our culture kind of as a whole, holds up as, as these are values, right? Um, and yet, I don't know who it was over here. I heard a comment that says, it seems like they're okay with commands 5 through 10, but not 1 through 4. Um, and I, I think that's right on, right? Any command having to do with respecting God's rights, we w- they want to discard, right? And yet, this is, this is the crucial call of wisdom in Scripture, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. In other words, as one author said, the whole enterprise of wisdom can go off course because of a simple mistake at the beginning. If you don't start with a fundamental fear of the Lord, you may get down a path where you've discovered some very wise things about life. But the reality is, if you haven't started with the fear of the Lord, you will never end up as a truly wise person, right? So there's elements of wisdom, sure, in some of this. But we have to be careful and wise as people living in a culture that wants to say, well, there's no one right way to live. I also think it's important to notice how many similarities there are between this and the Ten Commandments. Not just the Ten Commandments, but uh, John Dixon notes um, how many of these resonate with, with both the Ten Commandments and biblical ethics in general, right? So it certainly seems as if, well, they're not really that interested in reading the Bible, but the Bible has formed part of their worldview. They've chosen to shift and change some of it, but they, I think they would even recognize there's, there's, a, there's a sense here that this, just, this is just how you should live in community, right? And so... While we, we could spend a lot of time bashing this, I, I do think we can realize 
these words that were given here are foundational for communities from this point forward throughout all of history. And they really form and shape the ethic of so many different societies, our society included, um, even our kind of modern society as it's shifting away from some of their traditional cultural values. I think we still hold on to some of the ideas presented here. So this is what I want to do, kind of to end our discussion of the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. Um, I want to read you uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 20 through 25. If you want to write that down and look at later, you can. Um, But this is what Moses has to say as he kind of reflects on what God has given to Israel. Here's what he says. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, it doesn't matter, just obey them. No. Then you shall say to your son, verse 21, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. Do you hear this? He's painting a picture. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. You see it? You hear and then you fear and then you do and you will live. I mentioned uh, Daniel Block. He uh, wrote an article called The Grace of Torah. And in that he, he summarizes, he paraphrases Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25 for Christians today. I really like this. I just want to read this to you, what he says. Here's how he thinks we could perhaps recast Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25 for us. When our children ask us in days to come, what is the meaning of the ordinances and customs that we Christians observe? Then we will say, we were slaves to sin, but the Lord rescued us from the kingdom of darkness with a strong hand through the work of Christ on the cross and by raising him from the dead. Moreover, he showed great and distressing signs and wonders before the prince of the powers of this world and his followers. He has brought us out from there in fulfillment of his promises and in accord with his glorious plan of salvation in order to bring us into an inheritance eternal and imperishable. So the Lord commanded us to observe his commandments as an expression of our fear and love for Christ for our good always, and for our survival as his people. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to show that we love God with all our hearts by doing all that he commanded us. Then we will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. This is the good news of the gospel that Moses comes to preach to all of us. Not so different. I don't think, from the good news that Jesus came to bring. So then, 
as we look beyond Exodus chapter 20, uh, (coughs) things get a little dicey, right? We were interested maybe in the Ten Commandments, but after that, boy, our interest level plummets. (laughs) I mean, just look... Uh, just look at chapter 21. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before him. When you buy a Hebrew slave, oh, here we go, right? Oh, now we go into the uninteresting part of the book, the part where we begin to wonder what in the world are we supposed to do with this and why is this in our Bibles? <clears throat> I, uh, I don't know, I imagine in your mind you've come to some sort of peace about what to do with these sections of Scripture where you get all these laws, right? Maybe you're okay with the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, uh, but when it comes to passages like this or the book of Deuteronomy or some of the stuff in Numbers uh, or Leviticus, we just think, man, what are we supposed to do with all of this? Well, um, the traditional model, and I put this on your paper Uh, is to see them in kind of three basic categories, right? Moral laws, ritual laws, and civil laws. In other words, uh, people have kind of recognized that the commands seem to generally fall into these three categories. By moral, we would mean kind of something having to do with ethics, right? The way I behave. So that would maybe apply to all people. But then you have ritual laws that certainly seem to have to do with cleanliness and cleanliness in the camp and other things like that. And then you have these ceremonial laws, like what to do with this ox that you're coming to offer as a free will offering. Okay? So this is often the way that people will talk about these laws within these traditional categories. The problem is that nowhere in the Old Testament do we have these categories given to us. Right? Moses never says, okay, now I'm going to give you the moral laws. These are the ones you must follow even after the sacrificial system is obsolete. And he never says, these are the ritual laws that you should observe. And then over here, these are the ceremonial laws. Instead, they all seem to be kind of intertwined together. So in a sense, putting this division upon them is a little bit foreign to what we're actually given in the Old Testament itself. Okay? Here's the other problem, I think, with with this, is that the Bible doesn't necessarily um, suggest that ritual laws are completely and totally separate from any moral obligation. I mean, sometimes the ceremonial laws have ritual implications and then say something about morality. So if we're going to draw strict lines around these, it becomes difficult then for us to figure out well, which category does this one fall in? Can I put something in two categories? Can I put something in three categories? If I can put something in three categories, maybe I just shouldn't put it in the category at all, right? Maybe our categories are bad, right? And so I think it's, it just it becomes a little bit of a problem for us if we try to do this uh, with all of the laws in the Old Testament. I think it's helpful for us to recognize that some laws by nature are ritual or ceremonial, but I'm not sure that means that we can dismiss the ceremonial category or dismiss the ritual category. Does this make sense? Sort of. Okay. All right. So I think the reality is we actually just need to think a little bit harder about 
which of these laws actually apply to us. So here's what I want to suggest, an approach here that I'm just calling seeing the laws through Christ. Um, Here I'm kind of adapting some some things from John Walton and also from uh, this uh, guy Roy Gain. He just came out with this book, Old Testament Law for Christians, Um, this thick book, and it's kind of a comprehensive treatment. I think he does a great job of handling some of these things. So this is kind of an adapted version from some of those. I want to start, though, our discussion of this by reading what Jesus says, a passage that you probably all know, um, in Matthew chapter 5. Here's what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, verse 17. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Of all the passages in the New Testament that I think some preachers get uneasy with, this would probably be near the top, right? I think there's some preachers out there that would prefer to just kind of, you know, scribble those verses out of their Bible, right? I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Well, what Jesus really means is that he came to abolish the law. No, that's not what he says, right? He says, I didn't come to abolish it. If that's the case, then that means that all of the law we have is actually good and reliable and trustworthy, and they they represent God's words to us. So then what do we do with them, right? Am I really not allowed to get a tattoo? Can I sow my field with two different kinds of seed? Am I really not allowed to do that? How about that cotton polyester blend that I wore yesterday? (laughs) Am I violating some sort of Old Testament law because I'm wearing clothing made of two different kinds of cloth, right? So, I mean, we realize pretty quickly how this becomes a problem for us. And so we want, or maybe we would like, to be able to kind of dismiss all of it. But Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law or just do away with it, but rather to fulfill it. I think Jesus was, uh, more than anyone else who ever walked on the earth, uh, a master interpreter of Scripture. I think Jesus knew how to interpret Scripture like nobody else. And so I think we've got to pay attention, pay close attention to how he handled the Old Testament. Because I think he's telling us, this is the way you need to be reading it. This is the way you need to be understanding it. And so I think it's important for us to not do away with it, but rather to ask How can we make this fit in our worldview now after Jesus? So, seeing the laws through Christ. I want to suggest kind of four basic steps here. First of all, ask the question, what did the law originally mean? Here, what we're saying is just understand what the ancient law is all about. Understand the rationale behind it, okay? Sometimes it's difficult to do this because we don't understand fully the the ancient background of the text, right? But we got to do the work that we can, maybe use our study Bibles or other resources in order to figure out what was happening 
why, why did this, what was the rationale behind this, okay? And some of that can help us understand what the law originally meant. Many of the contexts involved ancient cultural elements that are a little bit foreign to us now, right? I mean, we don't really live in an agricultural society. We don't live in tents, at least most of us, right? Uh, we, we, don't, uh, we don't eat the same food. We don't do the same sorts of things. Uh, we have all sorts of influences on our lives that weren't on their lives. And so, surely our situation is different than theirs. And part of our job and understanding is trying to figure out what did this actually mean to them, okay? What situation was being in- addressed? Uh, who was this originally targeted at? Who was trying to be protected? Or who was trying to be protected against in the giving of this law, okay? How does this law function in its literary context? Um, in other words, does something that occurs right before it and something that occurs right after it help us understand perhaps what was meant by this law? Does this make sense? Okay, so all of this I think is, gonna, is, is going to help us get at the idea of what the law originally meant. Second of all, we ask what is at stake in the law, okay? What's the goal of the law? What's the principle The nature of God here, the abstraction about the importance of life, the way to relate to one another. What what is it that occurs here that gives cause for the law? So again, uh, we try to understand what in their culture was bound up within these laws. But more than that, I think we're trying to pull it back and say, what is the principle at play so that we can understand the reason that this law exists? Okay. Perhaps we're just seeing a punishment. Well, maybe we, what we can do is we can pull that back and see, well, this punishment is related to the law that was given here, and therefore we understand a little bit more. Um, I was listening to a podcast several months ago, and this gentleman was kind of documenting his uh, appeal of a parking ticket. Um, so he lived in a big city and had been given a parking ticket, and he felt like it was unwarranted, Right. There's no sign marking that his parking ticket, you know, he would receive a parking ticket there. Felt like it was unfair. So he appealed it, right? So he goes to court on this day, and there he's with, you know, I don't know, 15 other people. And they're all kind of in this room. And then the judge kind of explains some things to them. Uh, and then they go one by one, and each of them tries to make their case before the judge, right? And so the judge is fair and, and listens to what they have to say. But uh, it was interesting. The judge in his opening comment said, you are responsible to obey the law even if you were not aware of what the law actually was. You're still responsible to obey it. And so this guy, he goes ahead and makes his, his appeal, right? I, I didn't know. There was no sign marking that there was supposed to, you know, you can't park in this zone. And so the judge says, well, you know, I understand that. And, you know, I realize that you feel this was unfair for you. But... As a resident of that city, it's your job to make sure you understand the laws. Maybe it wasn't marked, but that doesn't mean that the law didn't exist and you're not allowed to park in that place. Therefore, you still have to pay the fine, right? And so I think understanding the principle behind the law, you're responsible for it, helps us even now understand, well, then that's why some of these things that seem maybe seem unfair to us actually take place. 
So in, as we get to some of these laws, and maybe we think, well, this is a dumb law. It shouldn't be here in the first place. But perhaps what we can do is step back a little bit and ask, well, what was the purpose behind it? What's the idea that uh, God is trying to communicate through it? Okay, step number three then, how does this fit into God's plan? Here, you're trying to analyze the law within the process of redemption. Does it say something about creation? Does it say something about the new creation? Does it, does it remedy something faulty resulting from a fall into sin? I'm thinking about, uh, I think it's Numbers chapter 5. There's, uh, we're given the account of a test for an unfaithful wife. Okay? And so when a, a, when a husband suspects that his wife has been unfaithful, he can bring her to the tabernacle, Right? And then they have to go through this whole ritual. And basically what this woman has to do, she's got to, uh, the priest write something down uh, and then basically her, her kind of confession, right? I didn't do it. And then they grind it up into um, a powder, mix it with dust. And then she has to drink this stuff, right? And when she drinks it, uh, if she's innocent, then nothing will happen. But if she's guilty, then not good things will follow, Right? Uh, And so it would kind of be known, right? Because of this, this woman was unfaithful. So perhaps to us, this seems crazy, right? And just any jealous husband could go and accuse his wife. But if you think about it, what this is trying to do is, is, is trying to remedy a situation that exists only because of the fall, right? Without the fall, we would trust each other. In fact, God is trying to institute in the Ten Commandments a world in which you trust each other. You are after each other's best interests. And there will come times, though, when, when you don't trust each other. Even in this foundational relationship within the community, a husband and wife, the husband and wife won't trust each other. But what it does is it puts it back into the hands of God. And allow God, it allows God to be the one who justifies. So if the husband is accusing, 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 and that woman goes out from there just fine in the eyes of the entire community, well, she was right. You better believe her next time, she says, because she was right about this thing, right? But if, if she is punished, you know, if her womb shrivels, then the community will understand and they will know. God has judged her. So we can't trust this, this woman because of what she said or what she did. Okay? So sometimes this fits into God's plan because he's, he's trying to remedy something even temporarily that results from a fall into sin. Is there evidence of moral growth throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament? For instance, uh, one of the things we need to ask is uh, when we see a command, is it developed later on? So we have a command in uh, the... Uh, first five books of the Old Testament, to treat a foreigner well, right? So the foreigner that dwells in your midst, treat them well. But they're not really supposed to own land. Well, later in Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, we have a command to let the foreigner have land. So we've moved from just being kind to the foreigner to now letting them actually own land. And then later in the New Testament, here, there is no geographic or cultural boundary that separates you from becoming part of the people of God, right? And so we've moved from an outsider or a foreigner 
being welcomed to now in the New Testament, kind of a growth that we've seen. Now the foreigner is welcomed and becomes one among you because the people of God is not just one culture, but rather multicultural. It's a very diverse place. We want to ask the question in step number three, why would God require this? Remember that God's law is a revelation of himself. And so we allow this to point us to God and see how it reveals to us something about him. Okay, and so then, number four, how does this apply to us? Is the original goal of the law something that we could practice today? For instance, there's a law in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, we call it the Pentateuch, if that name is strange to you. Uh, but there's a law in the Pentateuch that says, right, you must install a parapet around your roof. Right? So if you own a house, make sure that you, you install a parapet around the roof. Now, how many of you have parapets around your roof? We don't even know what that is, right? Yeah. It's a railing. Yeah, a railing around your roof. Why would you do that? Yeah, the roofs were flat, right? Yeah. Now, when we, where we lived in the Middle East, all roofs were flat. I mean, every place I think that we lived, we've been on the roof because uh, you can walk up on the roof. But here, all our roofs are slanted, so you don't need a railing on a slanted roof, right? Why would you put a railing on your flat roof? So you don't fall? So your kids don't fall. So your neighbors don't fall. So your neighbor's kids don't fall. It certainly seems that as, as, as if it's saying, in your house, on, at your property, you have a responsibility for the safety of those in your house and those who may come to your house, right? And so perhaps we can think about how to apply this in our culture, right? How could we apply this to us? Well, maybe we don't need to install a railing on our roof, but perhaps we do not need to install, if we have young kids at home, a pool fence. Perhaps we need to, uh, perhaps we need to shovel our sidewalks if it's icy outside or put salt down or something like that, right? So the question becomes, how am I going to take care of people who come into my house or into my property? Am I going to take steps in order to care for them, even if it's an expense to me? Does this make sense? Um, there's also passages, right, uh, like there's a custom uh, where if a man dies having been married and yet he had no children, then his brother needs to marry that woman, right, in order that the family line might be carried on. In fact, there's this, I mean, it's not hilarious, but to me it's kind of funny. Uh, there's this passage, right, in Deuteronomy where it says, uh, if, if, in fact, the husband, the younger brother, says, no, I don't want to fulfill my command or fulfill my duty, then she has to bring him to the elders of the city, and he has to say there, I refuse to fulfill my obligation. And then she gets to spit in his face, right? And she gets to pull his sandal off, and his name will be known in Israel as the one whose sandal was pulled off. Like, oh, you did it, right? Uh, but this, this was shameful for them. 
And so we read something like that, and it's like, okay, you know, I'm not sure that I need to be, mar- I need to be like teaching that people need to be marrying the, the brother of the husband who died, right? We don't really teach that in our churches. Uh, but the reality is, I think if we ask the question again, how does this apply to us today? We have to think what was at stake in the law or what was the goal of the law? In that ancient culture, I think your name and identity was carried on from generation to generation by your offspring. If you did not have any offspring, then your name would be erased. Your reputation forever erased from the history books, right? Also, John, you know, somebody's going to take care of that woman. That's why when I do that, I don't know about soup in the face, that stuff. That gets a little... (laughs) Yeah. But, but I see that as somebody's got to take care of that woman because we didn't have welfare back then. No mm-hmm. green cards, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, someone has a responsibility to carry on the name yeah. of the family, but also to take care of the woman, yeah. right? Um, the, for us today, our identity is, does not seem to be wrapped up in children, right? Like, like our family identity is not necessarily tied to our descendants, right? Your name can carry on even if you don't have any kids, right? It's just the way that our culture has shifted and works now. So I would look at a law like this and say, well, I don't think, I think the reason that this law was given actually doesn't apply necessarily to us doing the same exact thing in our culture, in our day. Maybe there would be another way that you try to carry on the name or the reputation of someone who has passed away before before their time, right? And so maybe you could do something that would be a way to kind of apply this. But does that mean that every man who dies and doesn't have any kids, that his wife needs to marry his brother? I don't think so, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. So then uh, we also ask here, are there higher level values in the law that we need to honor? A concern for life would certainly fit in here. Um, and so here's, here's where I think we're going to move with this. And you may disagree with this, and that's okay. I think we don't start with the assumption, then, that the Old Testament law is not applicable unless the New Testament explicitly affirms it. We have a book in our library uh, that I was just looking at the other day um, where it says... There is no law within the Old Testament that applies to us today. It's only the laws that the New Testament explicitly affirms. Those are the ones that would apply to us today. I would say no. In fact, I think it's the opposite. I think perhaps we start with an assumption that the whole thing applies to us. And then we begin to try to figure out what does that actually look like. And sometimes we'll find that the New Testament explicitly rejects pieces of this, okay? Like we're allowed to eat pork. Praise the Lord, right? Uh, So there's prohibitions against that in the Old Testament that the New Testament seems very clear to do away with, okay? But I'm saying, instead of saying, well, we assume that it does away with everything, perhaps we need to start and say, we assume that everything applies unless the New Testament explicitly rejects it. 
Of course, the sacrificial doesn't apply to us anymore because of the sacrifice of Jesus, but that doesn't do away with the whole system. I think there's even some of the sacrificial system that points us to the goodness of God and helps us to see his righteousness and mercy through it all. All of these laws are good for us, and so we need to figure out how they actually apply to us. Okay, and so as we start to move through this, I just want to kind of quickly uh, run through some of these, and we'll pause every now and then to talk in a little more detail about what exactly the laws are like. So we start with some laws right at the end of Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Interestingly enough, at the end of Exodus 20, we have the first laws that deal with uh, making idols, making images, right? Which is, turns out is going to be kind of the biggest problem that Israel has right off the bat is not making an image. And so I think these are dealing with respect for God, okay? And so, uh, verse 24, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice it on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. I think God is saying, all you need is a dirt heap, right? This pile of dirt and a cathedral can become a place where God's presence dwells. And so, make sure, however you do it, make sure that you respect God in the process. Chapter 21, then, moves on to respect for life. It is perhaps no coincidence that the content of this chapter, like we talked about, right, it deals with one of the most easily abused levels of society, that of the slave. So that's where we, that's where we start. And what we're given here is less of kind of second-person commands, you will not do this, and more of kind of case law, right? If this happens, this is how you are to handle it, right? These, what, this hap- what it does is it gives you a general feel for the law. Now, these laws were not intended to be exhaustive, right? These case laws were not intended to tell you about every potential situation that could arise, right? There's all sorts of loopholes that you could find in these laws and their application. The idea was, no, this gives you an idea of the spirit of the law, and then you have to use wisdom and discernment in order to apply them to your situation. So first of all, we deal with slavery in verses 2 through 11. Chapter 12 through 17, or sorry, chapter 21, verses 12 through 17, we're talking about capital offenses, uh, different ways uh, that you receive extreme punishment within Israel. Verses 18 through 32 deal with personal injury. Um, what happens when people injure others or when people get injured? For instance, uh, verse 18, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall have to pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. In other words, This guy who hurt him now has to pay his sick leave and his disability, right? He's got to write those checks every two weeks, send them. Exodus 21, then, now we're dealing with respect for others' belongings. Uh, Verses 33 through 36 uh, of chapter 21 deal with a loss of livestock. Here's what you're supposed to do in those cases. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 22 then deal with the theft of livestock. Here's what you do when, 
Here's what you do when your livestock is stolen. Uh, verses 5 through 6, deal with the loss of land. Okay? This one's interesting, I think. Uh, chapter 22, verse 5. Uh, uh, or sorry, verse 6. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. This is a good example of case law, right? What if a guy isn't responsible for setting fire to it, right? Like personally. Like what if, like what if in actuality the guy was having a party and he had lamps burning all around the perimeter of the party and then he got drunk at the party and as he was like going around, he like stumbles and falls and falls on his donkey, right? And that donkey like kicks his leg and knocks over one of the lamps and the guy passes out because he was drunk. Right? Well, after that donkey kicks over one of the lamps, well, that fire starts and then, boy, it spreads quickly. And before you know it, it's gone and destroyed the other guy's field. Well, I didn't start the fire. Okay. So you see, there's like, there's all sorts of loopholes that you can imagine people would try to use. Uh, this isn't describing an exact situation and it has to meet all these criteria or it doesn't apply. Instead, it's much like saying, like, actually what the Supreme Court does, right? It says, this is what we think the intention of this law was or this ruling was. And so now we're going to apply that to this situation. So I think the judge would say, no, in that situation, you are the cause of your neighbor's field being burned and therefore you are responsible for it. Okay, does this make sense? Okay, disputes over property are dealt with in chapter 22, verses 7 through 15. Uh, 16 through 17 deals with actually the loss of virginity. And uh, this, I think, is a, listen to what it says, verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So I think this seems to confirm a very biblical idea that sex is what happens when you are married, right? The contract may not be finalized as in this instance, but this is now a problem and a huge obstacle to be dealt with, which is why I think God gives a law about it here. Um, Working at a college with college students, this question comes up a fair amount, right? Uh, What about sex outside of marriage? Um, especially for a lot of dating couples who are wrestling with this. You can tell in their own hearts and minds. And I just think, sure, you don't have uh, elaborate marriage ceremonies in the Old Testament, but it certainly seems to be the case that whoever it is that you have sex with, that person is your husband or your wife. Maybe their customs didn't look exactly like ours did, but the reality is uh, sex equals marriage, in my opinion. Chapter 22, then, we move on to respect for individuals. Uh, we once again start in verses 18 through 20 with talking about capital offenses. Then 21 through 27, failure to respect the vulnerable. There's a judgment for that. Verses 28 through 31, failure to respect God. There's a judgment for that as well. Okay, so then chapter 23, now we're dealing with respect for the system. First of all, you have to show respect for the truth. Listen to 23, verse 4. I want to camp out here for a minute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Short verse. But certainly seems to show a respect for the truth. Let's take the journey we talked about, these four steps. Let's do this with this verse here. 
uh, Roy Gain talks about this, and I think it would be helpful for us uh, to take this journey. Okay, so what did this law originally mean? Well, it seems to be directed at someone who has an enemy, right? Yeah? 23 verse 4, If you meet your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. It certainly seems to coincide with the command, do not steal, uh, but it goes beyond that even, right? Because it's like it's not that you're going to take it, you're not allowed to take it, it's that you actually have to bring it back to him. Listen to how Roy Gain talks about this. I think this is great. For example, this is what he says. You could be trudging home to your village from your barley field in the evening, exhausted from a long day of harvesting. As you round the bend in the path, you see a young ox plodding towards you by himself, heading away from the village. He should be in his stall by this time, but obviously his owner has not adequately secured him, and he has gotten loose. Then you recognize this ox belongs to a certain man in your village. That scoundrel. Nine years ago, he cheated you out of 70 shekels of silver, and then he blamed you, convincing others that he was in the right. Now his carelessness has cost him his prize ox, which he uses as his tractor to plow his fields and pull his wagon. Ha! Serves him right. Now let's see who gets the last laugh. In whatever way real life fills in the details, the situation poses an awkward choice that tests your character. The fact that the owner is your enemy naturally tends to make you indisposed to help him, especially if you are tired and don't feel like going out of your way for anyone, let alone someone who has done you dirty. You can avoid helping by simply doing nothing, in which case your enemy would permanently suffer the loss of the animal, and nobody except God would blame you. Interesting, isn't it? Okay, so if that's what the law originally meant, what's at stake in the law? Think about this. What do you think? What is at stake in the law? Okay, very good. Maybe we're going to see something actually happen with this strained relationship. Rendering good for evil. Okay. Think about the Ten Commandments. Good. If I, take, if I bring my neighbor's ox, my enemy's ox back, what does that show? I am fundamentally concerned with the interest of the other person even if that person is a scoundrel who cheated me out of 70 shekels. Yeah. This prohibits prejudicial treatment based on past offenses or personal feelings. And I, yeah, I think think you're exactly right. I think this is going to force you to wrestle with some of your past issues and hurts and wounds and anger and resentment, right? You see that ox in the room, go and get it, right, march it all the way back, stupid ox, right, but in the process, you've got to wrestle with the fact that you're doing something that you're supposed to be doing for your neighbor who hates you, 
It certainly seems to relate to Jesus' command, love your neighbor as yourself. Even if you aren't feeling an overwhelming emotion of love for your neighbor, there is a right thing to do, and that is what you should do. Love is a dispositional word, by the way, in the Old Testament. Not so much a feeling. Right? You love by the way you act. And so you love your neighbor as yourself, even if you're not just feeling so happy about being able to love your neighbor. So how does this fit into God's plan? Step number three. Well, we remember that there will be no hostility in the new creation. In many ways, expressions of kindness to repay hostility invite the kingdom of God into our world here and now. It is a way of refusing to allow our own culture to dictate what is right and wrong. Our culture would say, our atheist ten non-commandments would say, right? Well, he gets what's coming to him. You don't have to do anything. You just stand by and watch his ox walk down the road and out of his life, right? It serves him right, I think is the words that our culture would use to describe this. And yet, the reality is we don't, as believers, repay evil for evil, but rather we repay good for evil that is done to us. In this way, it is like we are inviting the kingdom of God into this world here and now. There will be one day when there will be no more hostility between people. There will be one day when the sacrifice of Jesus and what God comes to do to put the world back as it should be will remove all hostility like God has removed the barrier wall of hostility between us and him. By my actions now, I invite that kingdom into our world. Like Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We think of passages like Proverbs chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. Maybe you guys didn't even know this was in the book of Proverbs. Uh, But here's what Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22 says. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Okay. I don't think that's like your motivation. Like you want to you make him suffer? Here's a way to make him suffer, right? Um, instead, I think it's rather, uh, it's rather saying this is the way you are to handle things, the wise way to handle things. Romans chapter 12, verse 20, which is probably where we know it from, uh, is where Paul quotes this same verse. Romans chapter 12, verse con- verse. Uh, Verse, let's start in verse 19. Be, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. I like what uh, Roy Gaines says. The biblical way to destroy your enemy is to turn him into a friend. And so what does this mean for us? Well, I think there are, uh, I think we are already kind of talking, thinking about what this means for us, right? We certainly uh, could take on the task in a very literal sense of returning animals to their owners when they wander into our yard, right? So when that yappy dog that wakes you up every morning at 5.30 a.m. wanders into your yard, and you know who owns that lovely creature, right? 
Is it your job to kick him out the other side and into oncoming traffic? Or is it part of your responsibility to help make sure that the, the enemy that you have is not out of his animal? Perhaps that would be a very literal application of this to us. But perhaps we could go beyond this to even the New Testament teaching on love. Romans 12, verses 14 through 21 helps us here, where it says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. We could ask, Who is my enemy? Uh, Perhaps this is someone close to us. Perhaps it's someone you know in your circles right now. Um, And so perhaps what you need to do is think about someone in your life. Who is your enemy? And think about how can I bless them? What would it look like for me to return good to them instead of evil? But I wonder if perhaps for some of us, uh, maybe we don't have a lot of enemies, at least that we know personally, but we have some enemies, at least in our minds, based on some stereotypes that we hold, right? I know for us, going to live, uh, when we went to live in the Middle East, I had no idea uh, how many people were so vehemently opposed in America to, uh, to really the idea of, of us going to live among Muslims at all. Uh, it's not that people were, were opposed to us doing it. They, it just brought out a lot of people's really strong feelings about Muslims, right? And we heard all sorts of things as we were preparing to go. Um, So many people spoke to us of of their hatred for Muslims. And why? Well, I I think I can understand, in a way, why so many people feel a hatred towards Muslims. Maybe Americans feel like they were minding their own business and then Muslims came in and they attacked the trade center. Uh, Maybe they feel like... uh, Maybe they feel like like Muslims are only interested in destroying us and who we are, and I've done nothing to them. Okay, but the reality is, all Muslims are not terrorists. Okay, despite what you may have been told, I've never met a terrorist, at least that I know of. I've met hundreds of Muslims. I've never met one that was a terrorist. Um, but even if we are speaking of terrorists, okay, even if you are thinking of a terrorist in your mind, and then you consider them your enemy, then you have a responsibility, actually, right? To love them, to leave vengeance to the Lord and to seek their good for God's glory. So perhaps our enemy is not necessarily that person at work that bothers us a little bit. Maybe really it's, it's that person on the other side of the world who we don't understand. Uh, and when we see that person around town, or maybe there's someone at work that dresses a certain way or looks a certain way and it reminds us of certain feelings we have towards certain types of people. Perhaps we need to hold ourselves in check and ask, what am I doing to bless these people in my life? What are you doing to bless the Muslims in your life? What would Jesus do? Yeah, right? What are you doing to bless your enemy uh, in the world in which you live? This, I think, is what the biblical laws call us to. Not some sort of rigid adherence to just return my neighbor's ox or donkey when he's walking on the road. My, I don't have any neighbors that have oxes or donkeys, so I'm good. Right? No, I think it's, it's, it's evidence of God's character 
that he has put into the law. And, and it is our responsibility to try to understand that and ask the question, then how can we live this out? Not for the sake of obeying just for obedience, but because we are people who hear the good word of God, who fear his glorious presence, and then who seek to do in all of our lives so that we may live. Let me pray for you guys. Lord, I thank you for these texts. Um, and as we wrestle through them, we just ask for your wisdom. Will you give us discernment to be able to understand how to interpret some of these and apply them to our lives? And God, may we be people who look like Jesus in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.